Hello and welcome to the Pacific Wayfinder. I'm Ben Barhaim. On today's episode, we're going to talk about the biggest issue in the Pacific and the world right now, and that's the COVID-19 pandemic. We're fortunate to have two guests on the program today who are both directly involved in battling the pandemic across the Pacific. Dr. Paula Vavili is the Director of Public Health at the Pacific Community, also known as the SPC, which is based in Numia. While Dr. Nick Thompson is a public health epidemiologist and health advisor to the Pacific Security College. He's involved in working in that space between public health and security, and he's currently based in Adelaide. We might start with a bit of an overview of where we're at in the Pacific. It's now early July, we're a few months down the track and borders are closed. There's a humanitarian corridor in place. So Dr Paula, can you give us a sense of where the Pacific is at now in terms of dealing with the COVID crisis? Thanks, Ben. Uh, 16 out of the 22 Pacific Island countries and territories still have no cases. Uh, and so if, if you're looking uh, at, at this as a region, I think that's uh, an accomplishment that speaks to itself as to the leadership uh, and engagement of the leaders to put in place interventions quite early on. It, you, you would be aware that the uh, Pacific Islands were among the, the countries to have brought in uh, travel restrictions quite early. And, and some of the travel restrictions, more of the more stringent ones compared to others in, in the early phase of, of the pandemic. And, and as a result, uh, 16 countries still have no cases. Uh, so six of the countries have, uh, have had cases. And since the start of the um, outbreak, the countries that have had cases total about a total of 40, 445 cases and seven deaths. It's fair to say that if you're looking at the progression of the uh, disease, other than Guam and, and CNMI, which, which uh, there continues to be uh, cases found in the community, uh, the rest of the, the countries that uh, have had cases, Papua New Guinea, Fiji, uh, French Polynesia, and New Caledonia in particular, um, have, have cases uh, mostly at the border. And, and so if you're looking at, at control to date, it's been quite good. For, for the Pacific region in not only limiting the cases in coming in to most of the countries, but for those that have countries, uh, there have been strict measures that have uh, been put in place to, to get them to where they are now. If, if, if you just split it broadly into a public health response and a clinical health response, the, the public health systems in the Pacific by and large are relatively strong, obviously some better than others. But the clinical services, i.e. the hospital-based management, uh, there's great variation and there's a, a great challenge for, for putting this uh, together to, to mount a reasonable response. So if I give a, a quick example that might demonstrate the point, if, you, if you're looking at ability to ventilate patients, short of the stronger countries, and you know when we say stronger countries, we, we say Fiji, French Polynesia, New Caledonia, Guam, uh, certain areas of Papua New Guinea, the rest of the Pacific, their capacity to ventilate patients would probably be less than 10 patients. And for many of them, I would say at least half of them, their capacity to ventilate would be five or less. Uh, and so the clinical ability to respond. At the start of the outbreak, only six countries were able to test for COVID-19 uh, in the countries. Papua New Guinea, Fiji, French Polynesia, New Caledonia, and Guam, and, and uh, Palau was added to that list uh, not too long after. And the rest of the countries, they had to uh, 
send specimens overseas for testing. And this also, of course, had its limitation because when the borders were closed, it became very difficult to send uh, testing. Fortunately, gene expert testing, which is uh, already available in the countries for testing for HIV and TB, the machine is already in the countries. The company was able to make cartridges for testing for COVID-19. And, and, and this is what uh, most of the countries are able to do now uh, that, that don't have the, the normal gold standard RT-PCR testing. And so uh, all the countries at the moment uh, would be able to do some level of testing in the country. But uh, as you can appreciate, everybody in the world wants these cartridges. And so the supply is, is certainly not uh, where the countries or the partners supporting the countries, uh, not where they, they, uh, they should be. Uh, so, Nick Thompson, what's your sense of how the Pacific is, is coping so far with the COVID crisis? And any thoughts about what it could be doing better? It's been an incredible effort so far to contain the epidemic to, to only a few countries and the majority of countries without cases. Um, and, and as alluded to, the, the, the clinical health systems in play with only you know, limited capacity to ventilate uh, critical cases, if, if, we had, uh, if we had not uh, taken the measures that have been taken, a lot of these countries' uh, health systems could have been absolutely overrun uh, extremely quickly, and, and that was obviously just not an option. And so, from that perspective, I, I, it's been a remarkable performance, and, and all credit to the leaderships of the countries and, and the SBC and, and, and other technical partners and others who have, you know, really uh, driven this home. I think we've got a couple of um, a couple of areas that we need to be kind of conscious of, and particularly, I mean, I think we could, you know, we could talk to to the India, Indonesia, West Papua border. Um, and Indonesia um, and Indonesia PNG more, more generally. I think the potential situation going on in Indonesia with regards case numbers, and, and I think we're, I think Indonesia will soon become the, the hotspot in Asia, at least, for COVID-19. And I think that has implications for, for the region, as, as we all recognise. So being able to uh, ensure that surveillance uh, surveillance and testing, particularly along, along that uh, West Papua PNG border, is going to be critical and also improving the opportunity to understand the movement uh, of people across that border. So many of the Pacific Island countries, uh, when you close your borders, you know, you're surrounded by sea, but that's not the case with Papua New Guinea. So I think that, that remains, for me, looking, looking inside from the out, um, a particular hotspot area. I think the other uh, thing that, that we're going to be grappling with is that we've been talking about the immediacy of case management, identification and containment, and that's been an absolute story of success. The challenge now going forward is you know, how do we begin to breathe some life back into, into the economies of the region so we don't get second and third and fourth uh, implications of, of long-term shutdowns? Uh, and the health and social consequences that possibly a company knows. Dr. Paula, has the SPC been mandated for a particular role to battle COVID across the Pacific? SPC, as you know, is the designated public health uh, organization and lead among the crop agencies for the region. And, and therefore, it is mandated to provide support for public health in the region. In particular, to the uh, response to COVID 19. Public Health Division has three main uh, areas of work. One is on uh, health security, which looks at, at areas uh, including things uh, like COVID-19. It has a clinical services program, 
which uh, supports hospital-oriented uh, work, and it has a non-communicable diseases program. And so you can say that, that all the areas that we, we work on is directly related to the COVID-19 response. Good to note that the coordination of the Pacific response for COVID-19 is uh, done through the Joint Incident Management Team, uh, which is led by WHO and uh, facilitated out of the WHO office in Suva and SPC, WHO, UNICEF, uh, World Food Program, a lot of the UN agencies, uh, including World Bank, uh, ADB and, and PIFs, they are all involved in this to ensure that it is a coordinated effort to, to help the countries better. But uh, to answer your question, in, in terms of the specific areas where we are providing a, a lot of the support, given our strengths, we do uh, surveillance, lab support, infection prevention and control, clinical services, risk communications, coordination and, and monitoring and evaluation. That's great. And just to get a bit of background on yourself, Dr. Paula, where, where did you grow up and, and practice medicine before you joined the SPC? Yeah, I grew up in Tonga. I then uh, did human nutrition training in New Zealand, in Otago, then studied medicine in uh, Fiji, did some ophthalmology training in Auckland and public health training in Sydney before working in Tonga for about 20 odd years before joining SPC about seven years ago. And our public health division now has about 30 staff and, and supporting uh, Pacific Island countries and territories in the areas I alluded to earlier. In, in my time in Tonga, I spend uh, time in the hospital as well as in, as in uh, public health. And then I think uh, that gives you a pretty unique appreciation of the balance between approaching things from a clinical perspective, but also to the key role that public health plays in, in addressing a lot of the health challenges. And COVID-19 is certainly one of those areas. Great. Now, Dr. Nick, you're based in Adelaide, I believe. Uh, perhaps you can give us a bit, a bit of background on yourself. I believe you're an epidemiologist. Where, where did you study? And... Um, what sort of work have you been involved in, in the last few years before you joined the Pacific Security College? Yeah, I, I describe myself loosely as a, as a public health epidemiologist, um, uh, having uh, done a PhD in, in that subject matter at the at Monash University. But I spent 12 years uh, on the ground with Johns Hopkins School of Public Health based in Northern Thailand in, uh, working on HIV, hepatitis C, uh, with a particular focus on drug use and the implications for HIV prevention. So I spent a long time on, on the ground in that part of the world. And, and uh, when I came back to Australia in about 2013-14, I came back with a kind of a mission to see whether we could um, enhance partnerships between security sectors and public health, having witnessed uh, the potential harm that security sectors can do to public health in some of the settings that I'd worked in. I, I really felt that we needed to improve connectivity between those sectors. And it just so happened that I happened to be in Canberra as the Pacific Security College was just getting off the ground and I had a chat with our director and deputy directors around the opportunities in pandemic preparedness back in September, Ben, and uh, sort of indicating that I thought that there was possibilities to enhance uh, whole of government approaches to pandemic preparedness across the Indo-Pacific region more generally. And uh, no one really quite knew um, you know, where that conversation would end up, but it ended up a few months later, we were in the midst of a pandemic Fortunately, the Pacific Security College and their team uh, asked whether I could come on board and support some of the work that we're trying to get off the ground here, which is essentially you know, foregrounding the role of, of health 
as a construct of national security, and particularly in the context of the Pacific. And COVID-19 is putting all sorts of, of systems under pressure and this idea of, of multi-agency coordination, making sure that we get the best possible partnerships in play you know, with the centrality of, of ministries of health and, and the SPC and, and their health division kind of leading the charge. How do we best prepare other agencies to support them? And Dr. Powell, if, if we want to talk about the humanitarian corridor that Australia, New Zealand, the Pacific Islands Forum and SPC are all involved in, can you give us a sense of, of how that's working in practice? Is Australia and New Zealand providing lots of PPE, testing kits, ventilators, and, and making them available through the SPC and PIF for, for distribution around the region? Or how does it actually work in practice? I think it would be useful to start by saying that there's been a tremendous amount of support for Pacific Islanders from uh, development partners and implementing agencies who provide support for the countries. This includes uh, Australia in a significant way, New Zealand, US, France and EU, and, and many of the other countries that normally provide support for for the work in, in, in the Pacific. And, and I think it's also worth saying that at the end of this uh, pandemic, the Pacific Island countries and territories would be at a place of preparedness that they probably uh, had never been for handling a, an outbreak epidemic pandemic, simply because the investments that has been put into place because of COVID-19 has been so significant. Yeah. It's important to, to appreciate that support. On, on the Pacific humanitarian pathway, really what that put in place was a process where the region agreed to that would facilitate movement not only of uh, equipment and supplies, but also of technical support. For example, New Zealand, Australia and, and other supporters would have uh, in place uh, equipment that would be sent to the countries. On occasions, Australia would provide uh, planes. On other occasions, uh, there's also a Pacific Pathways plane set up by World Food Program, who, as you know, is very um, good at doing logistics all over the world. And, and they've set up, they're part of the work within the joint IMT because they're, they're facilitating the logistics for, for movement of goods and, and uh, people. What Pathway has done was it put in place protocols for immigration, for customs, for expert people going into the countries and, and all the, the requirements for travel so that when people needed to move uh, equipment or, or supplies, they didn't have to negotiate with each country individually, but there was a, a regional agreement that this will happen and therefore it would uh, enable the processes to, to be better. So it has really helped in, in facilitating this and, and uh, the partners really have contributed to making it work quite well. Are you comfortable with, with the number of tests being conducted and uh, increasing facilities that are becoming available to, to rapidly test across the region? For, for now, we would be happier with more testing. One of the issues at the moment is, is that there's just not enough supply to go around to everybody in the world because um, everybody wants it. In, in terms of, of providing support for testing, there, there had been an order put through for gene expert testing, for example, uh, by the partners of about 160,000 or so tests uh, that had been placed. Uh, would say that uh, of, of this amount, about 15,000, 20,000 has come through. There's some other testing uh, that has been made available through the USA for the US affiliated states. So at this point in time, the capacity to test is much, much better than when it started. 
and, and also useful to add that in addition to the gene expert testing, uh, there's support from Australia and and New Zealand and other partners to also put in place in the in some in most of the countries the ability to test with RT-PCR, which is the gold standard of the testing. So we anticipate at the end of this year, for instance, instead of five six countries having um, the gold standard for testing for COVID, we would anticipate that you know closer to 20 uh, would have this in place. And so this is when I, I say that. Uh, at the end of the pandemic, people will be much more prepared. It's never waste a crisis because because of this crisis, we've been able to build the capacity of the countries to be able to respond better. Is there a sense that the hospitals and, and, and critical care staff are, are well protected in terms of gear? Just like the lab testing, the uh, amount of uh, PPE that's that's gone to the countries is much uh, much more now than than there was in in the beginning, and uh, support from the countries themselves, Australia and New Zealand, uh, WHO and UNICEF have done a lot on uh, on providing support for PPEs to the countries, and so as as you can uh, appreciate, one of the the things for opening up, for instance, which are some some of the countries are, are beginning to do. One of the limiting factors for opening up for some of them was that they wanted enough PPE to be able to respond to people coming in for for their screening, quarantine and and other surveillance issues, as well as managing in case there was a patient. Yeah, you're touching on an interesting point that, you know, for the last few months, Pacific Island governments have closed their borders and battled this in in a health sense. Um, concern about the economic impact, obviously, especially with so many Pacific countries dependent on tourism. How are countries in the, in our region going to get that balance right between effective health controls while at the same time allowing their economies to motor along and potentially even open up for tourism? And I guess the, the logical follow-on from that is, are Pacific countries ready to become part of that Pacific bubble? Listen, I, I think this is this is the situation that that we're really grappling with with around the world, and and we see um, you know governments under enormous pressure to open up. So the idea of travel hubs is something that's been spoken about, and if you I mean just looking at uh, how you might do that to give us real confidence in that, there's there's a couple of things that we need in play. One is that we need to have total confidence in the data, and uh, the data that's being reported, whether that's Australia, New Zealand and into the Pacific Island countries. Secondly, we, we need uh, rapid testing so that if we were going to send a uh, plane load of people on holidays uh, to some of the beautiful countries in the region, you'd want to make sure that they were they were obviously clear of COVID before they left and indeed when they landed. Dr. Paula, do you want to speak to tension between health and economics? Yes, uh, most certainly. And, and, and of course, what we're seeing play around globally uh, is, is also a very real uh, issue for us here in, in the Pacific. You know, we certainly are seeing in some of the countries, particularly those that are very reliant on tourism, that the economic impact is impacting them. But it's also fair to say that for many of the countries, they're, they're still seeing that the health of the people is still important. And I think a lot of the countries are looking at assessing the risk from the country of origin and therefore the risk for them. And this is probably why you it's, it's not a surprise that you're seeing most of the countries are, are positively looking at opening up to New Zealand. A few of the countries, in fact, have, have approached New Zealand to, to open up with no quarantine for New Zealand, but have still limited travel very much to other countries. 
because they are looking at, at uh, risks for themselves. I think one of the things that is also important to touch upon is the country's population's readiness to accept people coming in. Often the assessment from the health authorities, for example, may be that the risk, and therefore you are seeing different levels of willingness to, to open up or not. Fiji, for instance, is, is uh, willing to open their, their borders and, and have uh, come out publicly to have discussions around this. Vanuatu has done the same. Cook Islands have, have done the same. Uh, but uh, different countries have different levels of comfort. So for now, the, most of the countries is still limited to their own citizens and, and not open yet to non-citizens. You, you mentioned earlier about not letting a, a good crisis go to waste. Dealing with this COVID situation, are you hopeful that, that it's really put a, a renewed focus on health systems across the region? Most certainly, and, and we're certainly seeing it in all the countries. All the countries have allocated unprecedented amounts to health for the response. Uh, we've, we've seen uh, pretty much all the countries put in place uh, facilities that were developed specifically for, for addressing the, the COVID response, put in place policies and, and uh, measures to, to address point of entry, for instance, uh, at the border, measures that, that were not there before or measures that were there before but, but not as strong as they could have been. But most certainly with the response to, to COVID-19, there's been a lot of investment in health. And, uh, and whilst it, it is not great for anybody that we've had the pandemic, the reality is at the end of the pandemic, the health systems in all the countries will be stronger than what they were before. Nick, do you have any thoughts on this? Listen, I think uh, you know, COVID-19 has, has been the Trojan horse for absolute focus on, on health systems and improving their capacity. And I think we only have to go a couple of months back, though, as well, uh, look at the measles outbreak last November in Samoa. So countries had some really relevant and timely experience with managing epidemics. Uh, and I think one of the things that that has kind of comes out to me is this, as we've seen many countries around the world and indeed in the Pacific, you know, mobilising states of emergency. Now, states of emergency for public health uh, reasons, you know, create a really interesting dynamic where the centrality and the authority of ministries of health and, and health authorities more generally is is unchallenged uh, as it should be. Uh, and then how do you how do you ensure that your other agencies, whether they be police or uh, ministries of interior or customs or border control, uh, are also playing an important partnering role? I think what I'd like to continue to see us work on is this idea of you know, what does a whole of government response look like in the context of pandemic preparedness and response? How do other agencies support uh, Ministry of Health in, in their endeavours and, and how, do, how do they support the Ministry of Health to lead and really kind of lay out uh, what is happening in the communication of that going forward as well? I think the Pacific Islands are, are really in a unique position here through their Boy Declaration on security, which, which really speaks to a whole range of how they view regional security um, through traditional and non-traditional framing and this idea that health is, is really foregrounded as an as a important construct of national security. So I think COVID has really highlighted and given us a rationale to really show how, how that plays out uh, in the region and, and how do we continue to see health you know, positioned where it should be, which you know, without, without health, there, there is nothing else. There's uh, some great opportunities for learning uh, here and, and the Pacific Island countries are in many ways, leading global responses in how we consider health as part of a national security construct. 
That's great. Very interesting discussion. We're going to start wrapping up, but um, I'd like to get both of you just to, to give us a reminder for our Pacific community what they need to do to protect themselves individually and as communities. I hear health officials say that complacency is our is in some ways the biggest danger. I think from our perspective, one of the things we always talk about is that in the response, we need to be careful and alert, but not to be unnecessarily scared. And the, the measures are, are simple, but very important. And when we, we talk to our counterparts in the Pacific, one of the things we stress to them that, that the preventive measures that are put in place is to ensure that people don't come in contact with the virus. If you don't come into contact with the virus, then, then you can't get it. And so the, the measures that is often talked about of, of uh, hand hygiene, of um, social physical distancing, where necessary of uh, wearing masks has really been taken up by the, by the Pacific countries. One of the things, for, for example, for me was when the governments decided that there will be no church service for Pacific Islander, that's a big call. But the churches from the beginning uh, were, were very engaged. And, and this talks to the notion that uh, health on their own cannot make it work. But we've seen in the Pacific very good examples of very strong collaboration between all the, the partners that need to come together, both government and, and civil society. Nick, anything you'd like to reinforce? Yeah, sure. I mean, obviously the clinical and individual approaches to hygiene and, and health have, that have been well documented around uh, social distancing, 1.5, you know, regular washing, thorough washing of hands, of course. And, and I think some of the other things that I would just kind of highlight and, and reinforce is, you know, the idea that, that health can't do this alone, this requires a whole of community approach. So the communication between government and its people has to be absolutely clear and well evidenced and people need to have trust in that and, and that's been one of the hallmarks in the region thus far so we'd obviously like to see that continue. I think we also want to make sure that that as Dr. Parler said like we use this as an opportunity and I think uh, we you know this is an opportunity to to really see uh, civil society and community thrive uh, in regards to their trust in government to really deliver the response to COVID-19 and support the the recovery back to, to what will be a different normal, but one that we will continue to hope will be as prosperous and as healthy as it can be for all. Now, the Pacific Security College has put a fair bit of work into developing a, a data-rich map, which, uh, which people can find on the policyforum.net website. And that's a, a COVID tracking map, which looks at all the different cases and policies underway across every Pacific Island country. So anyone who's interested to, to keep an eye on this, you can look at the, uh, the PSC COVID tracking map, which is at policyforum.net. Nick and, and Paola, are there any other websites that you think are, are really the best in terms of our Pacific community being able to access this sort of information? Yeah, uh, certainly with our uh, website at uh, spc.int, there, there is some information there on COVID-19 and, and what SPC is doing. The WHO website obviously provides a lot of, of information as well. So for, for the Pacific, I would say they're quite well served with support, certainly with information. Yeah, Ben, and I would only uh, just add to that, that if, if people want to see how well the Pacific is actually doing, that they can also refer to the Johns Hopkins website, which is tracking the global data. I worked out very quickly that the Pacific Island countries, particularly in, in our part of the region of the Pacific, have done extremely well 
vis-a-vis uh, the countries in the world. So I think I think uh, it's been laid out here. The, there's various sources of information, and information is as only as good as as it's uh, as it's aggregated and as it's disaggregated. And so just a just a kind of a, a note there that when looking at data, uh, we always need to make sure that that it, it's contextualised uh, and it's and it's up to date and it's communicated as well as possible um, to the people that are accessing it at a country level. Well, let's hope the Pacific continues to win the battle against this deadly pandemic disease. Dr. Paula Vavilli at the SPC in Numea, and Dr. Nick Thompson, who's the Pacific Security College Advisor on Health and Security. Thanks for joining us. That wraps up another episode of the Pacific Wayfinder. You can find the transcript and link for this episode on our website, pacificsecurity.net, where you can listen and subscribe. You'll find links to the songs named by our guests there and other related material. You can also find us via our Facebook page and your favourite podcasting platform. Our theme music is the song Tabaran by Not Drowning Waving. Thanks to Eliora Malifa for producing this episode. And please tune in next time for more discussions under the banyan tree with the Pacific Wayfinder.